Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Our text this morning is verses 9 through 15. We will finish up Titus this week. As we began into Titus, we had talked about how that Paul is really instructing Titus on what a healthy church really looks like. If you have uh, men of character, of integrity, that are trying to lead the church accordingly, focusing upon the scriptures, that you have the church members themselves that are seeking after godliness, that we are continually reflecting upon the great grace that God has granted to us in Christ, the church flourishes as we continually ponder on these things of what God has done because it produces in us a great appreciation for our salvation in Christ. Uh, Paul gave a wonderful summary uh, of the gospel in, in the text that Jason went over last week that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we have a number of things here in order to see what a healthy church looks like. And as Paul is finishing up his letter to Titus, he is going to address a few other things that we need to be on guard against, that we need to pursue as well. One of the, the great strengths of any church is to have unity. If you don't have unity within the church then the church is susceptible to fall, to be divided. Unity is something that we must pursue, though. It must be sought out. It it can't just be that um, we we want to do nothing, we just want to stay in our lane. Uh, It it needs to be that that unity is developed through relationships, through through that commonality of, of the gospel. We have one Lord, one Savior, one baptism, all of that. Uh, we, we pursue unity by, by being grounded in truth. Truth is what unites us. Now, truth, or excuse me, unity can be had in a very superficial way. You can get people together with just maybe a common idea or something like that, and, and maybe they might have unity in that particular endeavor or whatever. But true unity is based upon truth. Without truth, you really have nothing. Uh, superficial unity would be like you have people of, of very opposing views as, as far as the scriptures themselves. Perhaps one being more uh, faithful to the scripture, orthodox, and the other being more liberal. You can have a superficial unity in talking about some things, but ultimately you have no unity. There is no unity. You might have peace with one another, or you might try to make peace with one another, but really, that peace is only there until you start talking. And once you start talking, it's gone. One writer said, let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Truth must be what we seek after, and that is indeed what unites us. So this is some of the things that Paul is going to bring out to us today. And finishing up his letter to Titus is the need for truth, the need to pursue truth, and the need to focus upon truth and not focus upon things that are really useless 
that would only cause division, and in doing so, the church will be united in its purpose, united in its love, united in its ministry. And these are things that we need to give our attention to here. It's easy to get go, it's easy to go down rabbit trails and, and all of that, but we need to come back to the, the very central truths that unite us. There are differences here among certain doctrinal things. Uh, we would consider to be secondary issues, especially when it comes to eschatology. One day, you will convert. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but we can have those conversations. We can, we can have those disagreements. Because there are some things in Scripture that are just not as clear as other things. We recognize that. I recognize that too. I give, I give people a hard time because I'm an all-millennialist, but, but at the same token, there are certain things in Scripture that are just not clear. And we have to recognize that. But the things that are clear, the things that are dealing with the gospel itself of the person and work of Christ, these are central truths that unite us. Eschatology is one of the things that you can differ on, but in actuality we all agree on. It's just the timing of these particular things. But we need to have true unity in order to do that. The foundation of our unity must be the revealed scripture itself. That's what's going to unite us and keep us from going off into other areas which will be divisive. So these are the things that Paul's going to tell Titus. He's going to express to Titus. Uh, he is, th these are his last instructions, if you will, that he's giving uh, to this man of God. So if you would, let us give our attention to this passage of Scripture and pray that the Spirit of God would help produce these particular things in us that we would look like this kind of a church. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis or Tychicus to you, Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Once again, for this portion of your word, thank you for all that this book has taught us thus far and for the encouragement that we have received through it. And I pray, Father, as we end this book, that it will be once again an encouragement to our hearts, producing in us and cultivating in us a great desire to pursue your truth continually and the unity that we find as we surround ourselves with your truth. Father, be with each person here and open our minds and our hearts to receive your word by the Spirit of God. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, 
Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so Paul is concluding his letter to Titus, but in actuality to the church that's in Crete, as, as he expects that Titus is going to read this in the midst of the people, he's reminded them uh, of the good deeds that God's people are to engage in as a result of God's sovereign and gracious work in us. And knowing these things and dwelling upon these things is, again, what, what cultivates in us that great desire to do for the Lord, to, to try to pursue what is good and right in order to demonstrate by our lives our great appreciation for all that he has done in Christ. He has brought up, again, uh, the gospel. He has told us before in chapter 2, about the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, meaning all kinds of men, those that he just got done referring to in verses 1 and, and following of chapter 2. That grace is what instructs us, that parental oversight which brings us along, helps us then to look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself. Uh, people for his own possession, zealous for good works. In chapter 3, again, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He has said in verse 8, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So the grace of God has appeared. That grace of God that has appeared in Christ gives us that parental oversight, instructing us to do what is good and right, to be zealous for good deeds. Again, bringing up the gospel once, once more, uh, that those who believe will be engaged in good deeds. It is demonstrating for us throughout this, uh, this very small epistle that, that true salvation is evidenced or produces good deeds, good works. We have to, we have to see and, and to know that our faith is not a dead faith, but it is a faith that is a lively faith. It is a faith that seeks out those things that are good and right. It is profitable, he says. It's good and profitable to seek after these things. And you see that Paul is really emphasizing the practical outworking of theology. It's one thing to know a bunch of, bunch of information. It's, it's one thing to know a bunch of, of doctrine and, and, and all the things that we can read in systematic theology books and all that that, that are fascinating, for sure. Wonderful things that are contained there. And, and, and we... We enjoy reading. We enjoy studying theology. But we must put our theology into practice. You learn so that you can put it into practice. And these are some of the things that the apostle is saying to, to Titus, that he is emphasizing to Titus, this outworking of faith. Based on what Christ has done, through faith we are justified, and our justification results in good deeds, works. This is, this is a common theme 
that the Apostle Paul emphasizes throughout many of his epistles. And in fact, when you get to the book of Romans, which we're going to head into next week, when you get into the book of Romans, you have the first 11 chapters that are nothing but doctrinal, doctrinal teaching after doctrinal teaching that is emphasizing the grace of God in our justification, in our election, in our sanctification, all of these things. And then you get to chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice. Based on everything that you've read in chapter 11 of the faith that has been produced in you, of all that God has done, now your response to this is to live a holy and acceptable life before God, pursuing what is good. This is a common theme throughout the scripture. True faith, true saving faith produces obedience, results in obedience. And not, not, a, not an obedience that is, um, you know, we think that we must do these things. It's, it's our duty to do it. God expects this of us, so let's get our checklist out. Let's make sure we're hitting everything here. The obedience that is produced in us by the Spirit of God is to delight in obedience or obeying. When you, and this is why it is necessary to keep reflecting upon what God has done for us in Christ because then it produces in us that great appreciation. Oh, Lord, you have done everything. What have I contributed to this? I've contributed nothing. I've done nothing to merit your grace and to merit your mercy and your love. Oh, Lord, how may I show you and demonstrate my, my love for you and my appreciation for you for all that you've done for me in Christ? And the Lord says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Here's how you may do it. By pursuing what is good and right. And this is where, this is really, just as a side note, this is really where the law comes into play. You, know, you have the law that first demonstrates our sin, shows us the holiness of God, it reflects the holiness of God, it shows us our sin and our need for God. And then you have the third use of the law, which is that it guides us to understand what is good and right before the Lord by looking to the law. As Luther said, he said, the Lord uses the law as a stick to beat me to Christ, or as a rod to beat me to Christ, and then he gives, me, gives it to me as a stick to walk me through life. We pursue the things that are contained within the scripture according to the law of God, because we know that the law is good and the law is holy and these things are good and right in the sight of God and reflect the holy nature of God. And so we must be zealous then for good deeds. Obedience. Love for God demonstrated in our life. Again, having given one of the greatest summaries of the gospel in verses 4 to 7, he, he, he concludes that with verse 8 being careful to engage in good deeds. And he says, these things are good and profitable for men. The gospel truth is good and profitable because it is truth. And it affects the change in us. Truth affects change in God's people. Not off-the-wall philosophies or speculations, as we'll get into here in just a moment. I know Jason had went over this last week, but it's good to just re rehash it a little bit as we come into verse 9. This is the way that God affects change in his people 
through his word, through the truth of the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, he says, God's way of sanctifying us is through the medium of truth, through his word, so that it is the truth of God working in us that produces our sanctification. As we've talked about before, you cannot grow in Christ apart from the word of God. You have some, some that think that they can ignore the word of God and just try to experience the spirit of God, whether it's in the worship service or whatever, and think that somehow they're being sanctified even more so by the experience rather than by the word of God. And the, the, the very truth of scripture that Jesus even prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, that you cannot be sanctified being set apart, growing in Christ, growing in holiness, growing in godliness, apart from the word of God. The spirit does not work independent of the word that he inspired. And so it must be what is good and profitable for a church. What cultivates in us uh, good deeds is the truth of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he says... It is through the sanctifying power of the word of God that spiritual life is communicated to the believer. It will never be given in any other way than through the truth of the scripture. I go so far as to say that no man has ever been saved apart from some definite truth out of the Bible and that there is no possible growth in Christian life apart from the deepening knowledge of his word. So what is our focus? What do we pursue? Our focus should be the word of God. What are we pursuing? We're pursuing the truth of God's word. So then what should we be careful to guard against? What should we watch out for? And that's where the apostles coming into what he says in verse 9. Which is really... To avoid useless quarreling. quarreling. He says in verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He says the things of God are good and profitable for men, but then he says these foolish controversies and genealogies and, and arguments about the law, they're unprofitable and they're worthless. They don't produce anything. Maybe that might be fascinating to consider and to look out for or um, maybe to share with one another in some respect, but not so that there's so much you know, being dogmatic that it must be that you believe what I believe or we can't be friends. I remember one, one lady we were working, me and, me and my cousin Stephen, we were working at the hospital and we were putting in some carpet. This has been a while back. And there was a lady there that uh, we had both known growing up she had talked about this revival. <laughs> she talked about this revival that she'd went to. And the gentleman who was preaching was preaching on the passage of where Elijah flees from Jezebel because he finds out that she's wanting to kill him. So Elijah flees from Jezebel. He lies down underneath the tree and he prays to the Lord, you know, for the Lord to take his life and the Lord says, you know, I have 7,000, haven't about a need of bail, all this. It's a wonderful passage. But she said, he preached on the significance of the tree. The tree 
that Elijah had sat under. What was the significance of this tree? What kind of tree it was? And she said, it was so fascinating. You're learning about this tree. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, Lord, please let my mouth be closed. Let me just shake my head and move along. Because I thought, this is ridiculous. We're, we're, we're so focused on a speculation about a tree that you're missing the entire point of the passage about Elijah. And, and God reserving for himself 7,000 that didn't buy, bow a knee to Baal. And we're focused on a tree. You get into some, some weird things at times, but those, those things are there because people want to fascinate other people and have that wow moment of, look what I found in the scripture. Like it doesn't matter what you found in the scripture, it only matters what the scripture actually says. I think it was Dr. MacArthur who was at a conference with another gentleman and this man had went on before Dr. MacArthur and he had preached on whatever it was and he came off the, off the platform and as Dr. MacArthur was getting ready to go on, he said, I bet you never seen that in the passage before, did you? And Dr. MacArthur said, no, because it's not there. But people want to have that wow moment. Look what I found that nobody else has found before. And it's just foolishness. That's all it is. is it's foolishness. It's unprofitable. It's worthless. But it's, but it's something that people like to focus on when you get into the Bible code. And even when you get into eschatology. Eschatology is something that is necessary to study because it's in the word of God. We need to know about it. We need to understand or try to form an opinion of what God is saying within the pages of the book of Revelation and all of that. But you can be so focused on eschatology and so focused on reading a newspaper to try to figure out what things are coming to pass that you miss the entirety of the rest of Scripture. And you won't even have fellowship with someone who has a different eschatology than you. There was one professor we had at Grand Bible College, very, very knowledgeable man. A wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, Mr. Lacey Andrews. And he had told us in class when we got to that portion of theology that uh, he was out in his yard one day, he was doing some work in it, and two men had approached him, and, and they were from the local Baptist church, and uh, they were going to witness to him, you know, share the gospel. And so he's like, oh, well, I'm a Christian too, you know, I'm a believer. And they started talking, and they were having some good fellowship. Something came up about eschatology, and Mr. Andrews said, well, I don't really hold to that particular position of eschatology. Then they wouldn't even shake his hand whenever they left. There are some things that you can be so dogmatic about that are not the clear teachings within Scripture. What things can you agree on? We know that Christ is coming back. We know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We know that we're going to be perfected in Him and all of these things. We know this and we can be united in that. But to be so focused that you miss the entirety of the rest of Scripture because you're so, you're so into eschatology, even that can become a hindrance to growing in Christ. These particular ones who are at uh, Crete, perhaps those of the circumcision that he had mentioned before, others who were trying to make a name for themselves, uh, began to bring in these foolish controversies, these genealogies that are trying to 
to have this bloodline of some of the heroes of the days past to establish maybe some, some credibility. Newt Larson says, The false teachers created intricate systems of interpretation based upon Old Testament Jewish law. These systems involve genealogies, legends, and fables of Hebrew tradition and invention, which pulled the new convert and others into a tangle of speculation. The, geneal the genealogy fascination probably stemmed from a desire to establish Hebrew tribal identity. These obsessions probably came from the circumcision group that held tightly to Jewish privilege and tradition. Instead of focusing on the clear teachings of Scripture, and when we talk about the clear teachings of Scripture, you're talking about more likely than not, obviously they didn't have the New Testament. Their focus was upon the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament Scripture, but yet they were able to preach the same things that we find within the New Testament, which is something that we need to be uh, thinking on as well. Everywhere that they went, they had the Old Testament, and they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. They were proving that Christ was who he claimed to be from the Old Testament. And as I heard one pastor say the other day, can we do that? We're so focused on the New Testament, which are the clear teachings, but are we able to rightly use the Old Testament as well to share the same truths? A little side note there. Um, but these particular ones are the, those who upset various households, as the Apostle has already spoken to Titus about. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These foolish controversies and genealogies which are unprofitable and worthless. And this word foolish comes from the Greek word moros, which is where we get the word moron or moronic from, which means stupid, as one commentator had written. These are stupid controversies. They're unprofitable. They're unprofitable for any growth in Christ. John Calvin describes these particular controversies as whatever is pointless, trifling, and irrelevant, by which false teachers seek to be lauded for their subtle speculations. Trying to come up with something just to, to capture the attention of those that are in the church. Things that are not profitable, things that are not grounded in Scripture, but speculations. Can you imagine, let's just look at this, and this question comes up every now and again. Sometimes it's just, it's an interesting question. Sometimes it's just a funny question. But can you imagine a church being so divided over the question of whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons? You heard that? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Well, they weren't in the womb, and they didn't have an umbilical cord, so did they really need that? But can you imagine something so speculative causing such division within a church, something so foolish and unprofitable? It is an interesting question. But can you imagine people being so dogmatic about it one way or the other that you end up having strife and disputes within the church? Maybe another example would be 
something that you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, which is the teaching of Lucifer's flood. Anybody heard this? I had grown up hearing about this. This is in conjunction with what is referred to as the gap theory, that there is supposedly a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and this is where people are trying to reconcile the millions of years and the dinosaurs and the cavemen and all of this sort of thing. They're trying to reconcile what atheistic philosophers and scientists are saying with the book of Genesis. So they say, well, there's a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And the earth was void and without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And it's like, okay, so God created the heavens and the earth, and all of a sudden in verse 2, the earth is void, it's empty, and it's without form. So what happened in between here? Well, nothing happened. He's, he's creating. But you have this doctrine of what's referred to as Lucifer's flood. That supposedly that there was another human race that was on the earth at this particular time with no souls. I don't know if they're trying to say that this is cavemen and these, and these supposed cavemen didn't have souls. I don't know what they're getting at. But this is where the dinosaurs were. And when Satan rebelled, when God hurled him to the earth and in, in God's wrath and judgment, he destroyed that particular world with a flood. And it was... Because of Satan, Satan and his rebellion, which is why you read of Lucifer's flood. Now, is there anything in Scripture whatsoever that even hints at anything like this? No, not at all. People are very dogmatic about it. There was a friend of our family growing up who was very dogmatic about this. What about traditions? That's something that we, we know of pretty well. You have people that are so consumed with traditions that have no biblical grounding whatsoever, but they're so fixated on it that it will cause disputes and strife within a church. There was a gentleman at my, my uh, cousin's church uh, a long time ago when he was pastoring uh, locally. Anytime they would bring up something about vacation Bible school, there was one particular deacon who would sit at the end of the table and just constantly shake his head. And he was shaking his head because the kids would have cookies and Kool-Aid. Like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Can't have that. Not on the church grounds. Mm-mm. Not anywhere in the building. Mm-mm. Has to be outside. You think, well, where's that even coming from? There's nothing in scripture on this, and yet it was something that caused a lot of disputes because of tradition. If our tradition is in conflict with scripture, then we need to alter our traditions. We need to change it to be in line with whatever God's word says because it's the source of truth. That's what is being emphasized here. Stick to the truth, focus on the truth, and not so much on these speculative things. Focus yourself upon what is clear within the scripture. Avoid these foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Maybe there were certain interpretations of the law that uh, some of these Jewish uh, 
people in the church were were trying to emphasize that weren't in, in correct interpretation, whatever it may have been. There's disputes about the law even today. How does the law apply to the believer? How would the law of God apply to a society? Does it apply to a society? Can it apply to a society? And if so, how does that work? There are still disputes about the law of God even today. But we must go back to what we know to be true and clear from Scripture so that we are avoiding these other things. We may have differing opinions on some things that are speculative. But we need to extend grace to one another too, understanding that we may not hold the same opinion on this, but the very clear things of Scripture we can be united on. That's what a church needs to pursue is what is clear from the Word of God. Clear. Larson says again, the modern church falls prey to the same mentality as these in this passage, arguing and dividing itself over opinions, political views, parenting styles, worship styles, secondary theological issues, and a vast assortment of opinions of personal preferences that we may elevate to spiritual law. Now, I do differ a little bit about what he just said. Because when it comes to worship styles, there are things that need to be within the service itself that are clear from Scripture. When it comes to political views, there needs to be an understanding of the things that are clearly revealed to us in Scripture of how we ought to be and what we should pursue, what we should stand against, and some of those things. Now, granted, you've got both parties that are going to conflict with a number of, number of those things. But it must be our political things are formed our views are formed by the truth of God. So, when it comes to foolish controversies, things that are unprofitable, let it not cause divisions among us. Now, he goes on from, from speaking generally about not allowing these controversies to even gain a foothold. But then what about a factious man? How do you contend with the divisive within the church? So he says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, he says, reject him after a first warning and a second warning. The third time is when he is to be rejected. Now, if you take what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus, you have an example or, um, uh, or alluding to exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 18. The apostle is telling Titus, follow the steps that you're supposed to follow when it comes to a factious man. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, this is very familiar to us. And what is he saying? If you have divisive ones within the congregation, the congregation, or this man needs to be held accountable and dealt with in order to maintain the purity of the congregation, which is to apply church discipline. Church discipline is, is needed. And sometimes church discipline isn't just trying to bring people up for charges, but it's going to that particular person. And it's, it's, it's saying to them, you know, we, we love you, but... 
you know, this way that you're living in your life, this particular sin that you're blatantly committing, um, that openly committing, whatever, this is wrong in the sight of God. This isn't how we are being, whatever the case may be. That is a form of church discipline as well. But here's the instructions that Jesus gave. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, this particular way that Jesus is talking about carrying out church discipline is one to maintain the integrity of the congregation and the purity of the congregation, but the instructions that he gives also is also to protect the one who is accused. What if you have a division within the church? One person thinks this, one person thinks this. In order to get rid of this one, this one over here brings an accusation. How do you know if it's true or not? You take two or more witnesses with you. So that every fact may be confirmed. And if this person really had done this, then you take the next steps. Call them to repentance. If they didn't and they say, I haven't done you know, that or said that or you know, I haven't been living in sin or whatever. Then you go back to the man who was the accuser. Okay, where, where's this coming from? And you deal with it. And by the way, when we think about the application of the law, this is another footnote. But when you think about the application of the law to the life of the believer, especially not just the moral law, but also the case laws of Israel, what Jesus said here is an application of the judicial law. Just to point that out to you. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people would say only the moral law applies, which is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The rest of the laws of the judicial case laws of Israel, they're done away and they're not applicable to us, etc., etc., but you have a number of places within the New Testament that the judicial law is being applied. So that's why it's good to look at the law of God, get the general principle of whatever it is saying or the clear teaching if it carries right over, and apply it because it's good and right in the sight of God. So in the event that two or three witnesses confirm that this man is a factious man, that he is a divisive man, that he is teaching things that he not ought to teach, foolish controversies causing strife and disputes. You give him warning, give him another opportunity, and that's extending grace. Give another opportunity. If he still does not repent, then you put him out of the church, which as the apostle says here, you reject him after a first and second warning. Put him out of the church. And the idea of putting him out of the church is not to just get rid of him, but it is, it is for the purpose of that he would, in his isolation and in his loneliness, that he would see his error and then come back and repent. Church discipline is for the purpose of calling people to repentance and that they would indeed carry that, carry that out. And a great example of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You find the, the man who had taken his father's wife and Paul saying, How are you allowing this in the church? I've already judged the man, I'm not even there, but I'm there with you in spirit. Put him out. But then in 2 Corinthians, it's alluded to the same situation of the same man. Okay, he repented. Now receive him back. Bring him back. Show him the love of God. 
So church discipline has its place in the church. It is necessary. But this is how we deal with divisive people. It must be taken care of. It can't, it can't just linger. The longer something lingers, especially when it's causing various opinions on a certain thing being dogmatic, then it's just going to fester. And so that's why when it comes to our personal opinions on some things that are not clear in Scripture, extend grace to one another. Somebody may not agree with me, but that's okay. Because it's not a clear primary doctrinal issue within the scripture but if something like that does come up then it's also necessary not just for the leadership to try to take any um, uh, position in this as far or take any steps in this if you know that this is going on then as jesus said in matthew 18 it's not just the church leaders you don't just go tell the church leader this guy's saying this over here you need to go talk to him you you being responsible and accountable to each other. If you know that somebody is saying something or causing division, you go to them first. You have first-hand knowledge of it. If you come to one of us, and then we go to the person, it's hearsay. We don't know if it's true or not. This person said this. Well, where are they at? Well, they're not here. You go to them. And as Jesus said, if your brother sins, go to them in private if they repent, you won your brother or sister. So it is necessary for the body of Christ itself to maintain the health of the church and the purity of the church to take part in, in, main, in maintaining order within the church and dealing with divisive people. Uh, we used to allow one particular gentleman to preach once, once a month on uh, Sundays. Uh, known him back in Bible college. He started coming to our church. Uh, he actually was in the Presbyterian church for a long time. He was ordained in the Presbyterian church. Uh, began coming here. Uh, and we allowed him to preach once a month. But it was interesting because every time it was his turn to preach, a certain family would not be here. And it was just kind of odd. It's like, they're never here when he's when he's here I wonder, wonder what the deal is and so after this some things had happened with this particular man and he left the church this family had come and said uh, well it's probably best that he's not preaching anymore because you know I, I used to work with him and, and he was he was a scoundrel at work or she did work with him actually and you think well that would have been some good information Otherwise, we would have never allowed him to be behind the pulpit. But that's where we take part in, in maintaining the purity of the body as well and dealing with divisive people. Um, it is necessary, again, that we do so. We do so out of love, out of care for the person who is, who is the offender. Uh, we don't use church discipline as a means to get rid of anybody, uh, for that would be wrong on the part of the accuser. Uh, but it is, it is a necessary part of maintaining the health of a church. Now, looking at what he's saying of avoiding the foolish genealogies and the foolish speculations, 
Uh, we need to focus on what is profitable and good, which is the word of God. We need to maintain the purity within the body of Christ by dealing with divisive people. And then what the apostle really sums up his letter with is some final instructions of, of ministry, putting these things into practice now. Don't focus on any of this nonsensical stuff. Deal with rebellious people. Focus on the scripture. And then here's the outworking of how this can play out within a congregation. These are the final remarks of ministry for Titus. Now, he mentions uh, that he's going to send Artemis or Tychicus uh, to Titus in order to take his place so that Titus can come to Nicopolis uh, to be with Paul for whatever the purpose was. Um, you have, he says here, uh, diligently help Zenus the lawyer, and maybe Zenus the lawyer and Apollos, it is speculated, speculated that they're the ones who are bringing the letter to Titus. And perhaps Zenus is coming, who is a lawyer, because if there are disputes about the law of God, then when he gets there, then perhaps he can give some insight into uh, the various issues there. But he says, diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, what do you have here? You have Apollos, who, as the scripture says, is an eloquent Jew who is very well versed in the scriptures. Uh, he was one that uh, uh, the, the Corinthians would claim for themselves as Paul addresses the Corinthians. You know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. So he must have been a very uh, dignified uh, man, for sure. Um, indeed, a uh, very powerful preacher of the gospel. You have uh, Tychicus, who uh, the apostle Paul references in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4. And he's described as a beloved brother and fellow minister in the Lord. These Fellow laborers, Tychicus, Artemis, Apollos, Zenus, Titus, Paul, they're all working together for the cause of Christ. They're not seeing each other as rivals, but they're working together. There's, there's a, the, the unity that, that is there in, in helping one another. Ministering with one another, not seeing each other as rivals. And he calls upon the church to help them as they come to deliver the, the message, the letter of Paul that has given to Titus, that the church is to, to diligently help them with whatever they may need for their journey, whether it's um, money, whether food, maybe they need some clothing, whatever the case is, the church is to, to be zealous in this to engage in good deeds, to give them what they need for their journey to go back to Paul for the ministering of the gospel. And he makes that statement, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. This is an opportunity for the church in Crete to put into practice what the apostle has been saying in this letter. Engage in good deeds, be zealous for good deeds, and here is a need that you can meet. Right now. That's what he's saying. You can meet this need when these men get there. And he says, finishing it up, all who greet, all who are with me greet you. And he says, very interestingly, greet those who love us in the faith. 
Grace be with you all. Why does he say that? Greet those who love us in the faith. Could it be, perhaps because of all the divisive people that are there, or the circumcision that is the people of the circumcision that are causing all the strife who really don't love Christ and who don't love Paul, that he's saying, greet those who do love us, who are in the faith. Don't greet these folks over here and let them think that they're okay. Let them understand that, that uh, the manner in which they are teaching and they're going about within the church is wrong and it's sinful. As he said before, of such a man, he's perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. But he ends it on the note of grace. He, he opens up with grace. He wants them to end on this note of grace. And when you're looking at this whole thing together, when you're summing up everything that the Apostle Paul is saying about having a healthy church, what a healthy church should look like, the very thing that he emphasizes in order to have this first and foremost is to understand that it is the sufficiency of Scripture that we must accept and receive. There's no need to go on with other, other ideas or philosophies and make them so dogmatic that it becomes spiritual law within the church. It must be that the Scripture is sufficient for faith and life. Everything we need to know for faith and life is contained in the Word of God. It teaches us all we need to know about God, of Christ, of His salvation, of things that are to come. How God wants us to live before Him. Everything is contained in Scriptures. So understand that the Scripture is sufficient to answer all those questions. How may I live before God? It's there. What is it that God has done? It's there. Who is God? It's there. As much as our finite mind can understand. We may come to a true knowledge of God through the scripture and of Christ and of the way of salvation. The scripture is sufficient for all of these things. So there's no need to look elsewhere. There's no need to come up with new ideas of things. Just read the scripture and do what it says. Seems pretty easy. It's all there. There's no fill in the blanks. This isn't a book of filling in the blank and scratching your head going, maybe he's talking about this. Maybe, maybe this. It's all, it's all there. It's clear. The scripture is sufficient. So don't get caught up in things that are unclear or in speculations. Because Scripture is the final authority. So, based on the Scripture being the final authority, based on the Scripture being the truth that the church needs to surround itself in and be, be immersed in, in order to have a healthy church, this is the foundation. Then you need folks that are in leadership, whatever, in the church, any officer within the church that needs to have integrity and who has a love for the Lord, a love for the Scripture. The church people themselves need to have a love for God and a love for Scripture, pursuing truth and seeking to live godly within, within this world in the present as, as best as we can, looking for the hope that is coming in Christ, be reminding each other of our need to, to understand again what Christ has done for us. The gospel is not just for the unbelieving, but it's for the people of God. It's still for the people of God. 
And we'll see this in Romans 1. The Apostle Paul says, I he, he opens it up to the saints who are in Rome. And then he says in chapter 1, I can't wait to get to you and to preach the gospel to you. But they're already converted. But it's because the gospel is for us to be reflecting upon, again, to see the magnitude of the love of God and the love of Christ. It's about rejecting the things that cause division that are not clear in Scripture. That's what a healthy church does. It deals with difficulties within the church in order that they don't fester. We work together in, in unity, in ministering together. We don't see any rivals within the church. Because any teacher that comes up within the church, just as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you don't have to say, I'm of this one, I'm of this one, I'm of this one. They're all yours. All of them are yours. And they're for your benefit. So we work together. We help one another. Be generous in your giving to one another. Generous in your sacrificing your time for one another. Demonstrating that love. And when you can give generously to one another, you're giving that encouragement. This is what a healthy church looks like. Engaging in good deeds, allowing the, the word of God to penetrate into the heart and then to put it into practice. And that's what it is. Seeking after the unity of the church in our doctrinal understandings of the clear teachings of Scripture, our love for one another, extending grace to one another, working together. Now, do we, but seeing these things on the, on the pages, are we pursuing those things? Do you search for ways in which you can bless others by using your own abilities or your giving toward one another? Do you look for ways to do that? Do you seek to be united with all your brothers and sisters in Christ who are here? Or do you keep your distance? I don't get along with that one. My personality conflicts with that one. So I'm just going to back off and not pursue anything. Is that, is, is that even going to be a help to the church? No, it's not. It helps you to avoid the difficult thing, which is coming together with someone that you don't agree with. That's the easy way. Are you actively pursuing unity among others and seeking to help one another being ready for every good work is your focus on the scripture or is your focus on things that are not clear in scripture that it has become spiritual law for you and that you will only fellowship with those who are of the same view as you concerning this This is what a healthy church looks like, this entire epistle. This is the kind of standard that we need to seek after and to continually seek after. We can come to some great things in the church and we can say, we're in a good place. But let us never say, we're in a good place, we got it figured out, we're good. Let us never say that. Let us say, we're in a good place right now, let us keep pursuing it. Growing together, growing in our love for one another, growing in our love especially for Christ. Maintain the unity in the body is, is, an, is an integral part of the life of a church. A church is only as strong as its people.
So what are you pursuing? What is your focus? Are you willing to give to one another? Are you willing to use your abilities for one another? And I pray that if we see our our faults where we haven't done well by each other, that the Spirit of God will move us to do right. Let us begin now to begin to love one another as we should. We've been called together in this local body by the sovereign hand of God. He is, we, we come from all walks of life and various personalities, but that's what makes coming together uh, even, even, even better, so much more rich, because God has given us such a stronger bond with one another that even certain family relationships can't compare to because we've been united in the Spirit of God. One Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of that. God has taken us from all, brought us together, and we get to call each other family. So let us pursue then what it is to be a faith family. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you so much um, for all that we have learned through this book. Um, Father, we, we take a lot of things for granted. We often take each other for granted. And we, don't, we don't pursue one another as we should, extending help, extending uh, grace to one another, love, demonstrating that love. Father, um, cultivate in us that, that great desire uh, to keep the unity uh, within the church. Thank you so much for every person that you've sent here. Thank you for all that they do and contribute to this local body. For their, their wisdom, uh, for their praying, for their encouragements, for their giving. Father, thank you for each person here as they are all vital to the church. None of us can do this alone. We need each other. So I pray that we would pursue the unity uh, of this local congregation even more so and do so by seeking truth from your word that we will be united on a solid foundation which is your word to delight in your word together to share your word with one another and the fascinating things that we are privileged to learn we pray father that we would be a church that is honoring to you do a mighty work within us and continue to bring us along Thank you where you have brought us from. Thank you for the wonderful relationships that we have and that are being cultivated even now, made even stronger. Father, thank you for this family that you have granted. May you be glorified in each one of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen.